A quick warning, there are curse words that are unbeeped in today's episode of the show. If you prefer a beeped version, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. Kelsey Irby isn't somebody who likes being in the spotlight. In fact, kind of the opposite. And she wasn't willing to get in the newspaper the night that she did the thing that got her national attention. She was just showing up to work, like normal, at the emergency room, at a hospital an hour or so outside Seattle, St. Michael's Medical Center. So that night when I came in um, at 7, I was looking at you know, the number of patients that were there, which was high. Like really high. People were all over the lobby in a messy chaos, sitting in wheelchairs because there weren't enough regular chairs, sitting on the floor, sick kids and their parents, ambulance crews with patients waiting to be seen. Kelsey says it was like an airport gate where the flight's just been canceled. A lot of dissatisfaction, a lot of unrest. And she was short-staffed. Kelsey's a charge nurse, so it's her job to make sure all these patients get seen and that she has enough staff to do that, which has been a problem since COVID at hospitals all over the country, hers included. So many nurses burned out and left the profession since COVID that it's left hospitals perpetually short-staffed, which, Kelsey points out, makes the job that much more stressful for the nurses who stayed and leads to more of them saying that they can't take it, throwing in the towel, making the problem worse, The people who run Kelsey's hospitals say their staffing levels are in line with national standards and best practices. But Kelsey says, typically, she only has half the nurses she should have for the night shift. Half. So I was already short-staffed, and then I was going to be two more down. Two of my 7 o'clock nurses had called in sick. And if that weren't enough, they'd had a cyber attack. This was a ransomware attack this past October, one of the largest nonprofit hospital chains in the country, Common Spirit Health which meant that suddenly they couldn't access patients' medical records on the computer for two weeks. I I cannot overstate how chaotic that made things and how much it slowed us down. Um, Normally she keeps track of everybody in the lobby by opening their charts on the computer where she can see if they have lab results yet and get the basic information to figure out who can wait longer and who needs care right away. And I can see if I need to keep my eye on this patient or this patient um, came in for chest pain, but they... They got punched in the chest by their brother. You know, chances are that's probably not a heart attack. Mm -hmm. But because we didn't have our computer system, I wasn't able to see anything other than just chest pain. (laughs) You know, so, and I couldn't see vital signs. I couldn't see labs. I couldn't see anything about the patient's history. That is very much like a pilot, you know, flying without, without instruments in a foggy, stormy night. I can't tell as you describe this, I can't tell, like, is this just a really bad night or is this, like, the worst you'd ever seen? It was the worst I'd ever seen for all of those reasons. I just felt like it had the potential to be um, a huge catastrophe. A huge catastrophe means what? The thing that we always worry about the most and the thing that we say a lot when we are short-staffed is we are one bad car accident away from, um, you know, from people dying. And not long ago, we had a hospital here in the area who actually had a patient die in the lobby in the waiting room in the ER. Actually, the patient, a 41-year-old woman, became unresponsive in the waiting room and then was pronounced dead once she got into an ER bed. And that's a huge, that's a huge fear. I'm just terrified that we're going to go out there and find somebody dead. She realized she just had to get more nurses to cover these cases. So she did the normal things that a charge nurse is supposed to do in that situation. First, she checked with the hospital supervisor, a.k.a. 
the house mom. I don't know what we'll ever do if it's a guy because the house mom is really the term. (laughs) The house mom has the power to send somebody from elsewhere in the hospital to help out in the ER for a few hours. Nurses, lab techs who can draw blood, transport staff, anybody. So she reaches the house mom. And that night there was nothing. There was no available help to be had. Second thing she tries, she asks that they page every single person who works for the ER to see if anybody who's not working will come in. Nobody says yes. Third thing, she asks if they can divert ambulances to other hospitals so they're not adding to the patient count in her emergency room. But she's told no. Computers are down at the hospital they would send patients to, and they're struggling also. Fourth thing, there's an ambulance company that the ER has a contract with and has called in in the past in exactly this kind of situation where they're short-staffed. To help us take vital signs on patients in the lobby or just do a tour of the lobby and just check on everybody. Those are things that helps us process patients faster. But the ambulance company was too busy to send anybody. So she tried four things, all the normal things you're supposed to do. Four things failed. Was there any place else she could turn for more help? Then she got an idea, the thing that landed her in the papers. She called 911. The headlines basically were, ER nurse calls 911 for help. Though, I should say, she did not actually dial the numbers 9, then 1, then 1. She has a regular phone number that she can call and just talk to the 911 dispatcher. It wasn't like a momentous decision-making process for me. It was just desperation. Central Communications, how can I help you? Hey, this is Kelsey over at St. Mike's in the ED. I am calling to see if you guys have any available crews that can come and help us in our lobby. We are drowning. Okay, hang on for me one moment. Okay, yeah, I don't know what hoops I have to jump through, but my house mom is drowning as well, so I thought I'm just going to call and see what I what I might be able to make happen. <laughs> can I just say the thing that really strikes me is you sound so calm. And that is really kind of part of the job description of being being the charge nurse, and I've I've kind of I've been like that my whole life, even as a kid. Um, in the moment, in the moment of crisis, I tend to stay pretty calm and focused and um, get home and, and cry. Did you go home and cry at the end of this night? Um, I, that night, and yeah, that, it wasn't the only time that I went home and cried during that week. Um, how many patients are there? Um, right now I have, um, it looks like about... So I have about, so in the lobby, I have two nurses for about 45 patients, which is horrible. And I can hear it in my voice. I can hear my um, my alarm, even though it, it sounds to, you know, to the outsider that I sound like I'm really calm. I can hear little things in my voice that tell me that I'm freaking out and <laughs> I'm trying to hide it. Yeah, yeah. Tell me what you're hearing that, that, that gives that away to you. Um, the laughter really is the thing that gives that away to me. I mean, I know, I know it's, it's, it's like unprecedented times, unprecedented requests, but I figured nope. it was worth a shot. <laughs> right. uh, a little you? nervous laugh, like kind of like, I don't know what else to do. Um, okay. It's almost like I am, uh, I'm throwing myself at your mercy because I have, no, I have no other options. What's your name? Kelsey. I'm in charge nurse tonight. Lucky me. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm going to see what we can do here. 911 decides to help her out. 
They send an ambulance crew of three people. The three of them work the lobby, help monitor and process patients. They're there for nearly two hours, which is enough to get Kelsey over the hump. Afterwards, when nurses around the country hear about this, they call Kelsey a shiro. They reach out to her. Some of them said, thanks for the idea. Call 911. I'm going to keep that one in mind just in case. Did it seem heroic to you, what you did? Not at all. Not at all. I don't see it that way. And, and I just saw it as solving a problem, doing my job, trying to solve a problem. She was the charge nurse. It was on her to figure things out. She basically raised her hand when she took the job and said, I'm it. And then had to deal with everything that followed, stuff she never predicted or imagined, which is true of everybody in our show today. We have stories where people are like, oh, I'm going to be the one to fix that. And only later do they really discover, to their surprise, what that can really entail. Even when you think you see things coming, you got it under control, that's who you are, you do not see things coming. WBEZ Chicago, this is American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. Pequon, every day is Father's Day. Family relationships, they get set in certain patterns. They're usually just hardened over time. I heard somebody recently use the word cooked to describe their relationship with a parent. That relationship is cooked. It's done. It's not going to change. Megan Tan felt that way about her and her dad. For years, they'd been distant. He was super critical of her. She stopped engaging, moved across the country, stayed away. And then something happened that made Megan decide to try to uncook the relationship, to remake it with different ingredients, which is one of the things that you just can't tell how it's going to go till you try. Here's Megan. My relationship with my father has always felt tail-chasing, like we can never get close. It just didn't work. We're pretty different, and he'll be the first to tell you how. This is a call from 2021. Yeah, Yeah, you're more emotional than... Than you are? Yeah. Yeah. Because you cry out in the open. I do cry out in the open. (laughs) What about you? When do you cry? Do you cry ever? You don't compare. I don't cry. I don't cry, okay? Oh. Mm -hmm. Why? In the heart, that's me. I was really brought up. That's the way I was brought up, he says. But it's hard to get him to say more than that. It's conversations like this that remind me I'm always getting to know my father. When I was little, he didn't teach us the language he grew up speaking. So I thought one way we could become close is if I learned Mandarin Chinese. When I was a freshman in college, I spent a whole year in the library learning how to write characters, doing rote memorization, burning phrases into my brain. Come on, Dad, I'm trying here. Over the phone, I remind him of what happened my first break home from college. We sat across the table and I showed off my new skills. I wanted to learn Chinese because I was trying to understand you and trying to get closer to you. And then I studied and studied and studied. And then I came home. That was the first time you ever told me that you didn't speak Chinese. Yeah. Surprise. Surprise, he says. And yeah, I was surprised. Shocked, really. Especially when I said, Wa Ching Nichir Fan. And he said, I have no idea what you're saying. 
I was 18 years old when my dad told me for the first time he spoke Dechu. In the end, he told me I should learn Spanish instead. It's more practical in America. I suppose this is when I should share some warm childhood memories of my dad. But when I reach back in my memory, I don't really see him. I don't see him at my birthday parties, volleyball games, or academic award ceremonies. He was pretty closed off, icy, shuddered. I remember how he always said no, how walking around him meant you walked softly. I remember his mood swings and how nothing I did felt like it was enough. I would tell him I got all A's. He would say, but you didn't do the dishes. I would pay for my own ballet classes. He would say, why are you wasting money on exercising? By the time I went to college, I had accepted how things were between us. I tried not to tell him anything I cared about because I didn't think he really cared to listen. He didn't really want to know me. But we always stayed in touch, even though it was pretty surface. I would call him check-in. Then, in 2021, my dad sunk into a deep depression. He was in such a dark place, my older sister Crystal called me. She's in Ohio. I'm all the way in L.A. She didn't know what to do. I felt for my father, so I made him a part of my daily routine. I would call him every morning to remind him someone was thinking of him. In January of 2022, I call my father three times and he doesn't respond. Wednesday, nothing. Saturday, I leave a message. Monday, I leave another message. Just as I'm putting my phone down, he calls me back. Hello? Dad? His voice is scratchy and dry. I can barely hear what he's saying. He's calling me from the floor. What do you mean you're on the floor? He fell. He's been on the floor for five days. I'm panicking. I keep my dad on my phone while I call Crystal with my boyfriend's phone. She says she's rushing over and hangs up. On the line with my dad, I keep him talking. I listen closely to his breathing. Then I hear everything unfold. Through his phone, I hear my sister come into his apartment. I hear her call 911. I hear medics rush through the door. They ask my father a few questions. What's his name? Where does he live? How old is he? I hear a stretcher unfold. My sister picks up his phone and tells me she'll call me right back. Click. I call my sister and ask for updates every day. The doctors don't know why my father fell. They don't know if he had a heart attack or a stroke. My sister tells me he's barely awake. He's having a hard time talking, walking, and going to the bathroom. After my dad is discharged from the hospital and checked into a rehabilitation facility, I buy a one-way plane ticket. I'm on my way back to my hometown in Ohio. My dad is 75. But when I see him for the first time after his fall, he looks like he's 90. Usually he's a round, big belly guy. But now his skin is hanging off his face. His eyes are sunken in, 
His hair is unrecognizably long, and he has a beard. I didn't even know he could grow a beard. Beside him is a walker. I quickly kiss him on the cheek and say, Hi, Dad, pretending to be unfazed. I'm coming in all smiles. I'm the youngest in my family. You know, the one who makes the jokes. Who intentionally brings an upbeat Kimmy Schmidt, Ted Lasso can-do spirit to family gatherings. I kind of thought when I touched down in Ohio, I would be the sunshine that saves my family. I would swoop in, relieve my sister, help my dad bounce back to himself, and then be back on an airplane. My dad spends a couple of weeks at the rehabilitation facility and then moves back home to his apartment. I start living with him temporarily. I get him into a routine, and every morning I have him do an exercise he loathes. Okay, smile three times. Ready? One. Nice. Okay, rest. All right, two. Big teeth, big teeth. There you go. Okay, three. Big, big, big cheese, cheese, cheese. Beautiful. Smiling looks good on you, Dad. I want his grin to remind him of the person he used to be. The person who moved across the world, Singapore to the U.S. as a 22-year-old, totally alone, to pursue a dream to attend college and study art. My father loved to draw. He made his living drawing and drafting streets at a civil engineering firm. When we were all sleeping, he'd sketch cartoons and figures on old newspapers. I'd find them in the kitchen the next morning, all over the metro section. After my dad retired, he would fly home to Singapore by himself to see his family. He would cook incredible Chinese food, fill his sketchbooks with portraits, and he was always in the middle of some big biography. I want to say, Dad, that's who you are. And that's who you can be again. But he fights me. He says, no. And I can't. This becomes his default response to everything. I feel like he's the bolder. And I'm Sisyphus. It's weird to be in my hometown for more than three days. Usually, I'm in and I'm gone. As I accompany my sister and my dad to visit doctor after doctor, I feel like I'm getting a peek into their life together. Crystal is 10 years older than me. When my parents got a divorce and sold our childhood home, she helped them sell it. She helped my father move into his apartment connected him to his doctor when he needed one. For most of our lives, Crystal's been the one shouldering the family responsibilities I've always avoided. At one appointment, we visit my father's psychiatric nurse practitioner. After the three of us settle into her office, she directs her focus on my father. She asks him some intimate questions about his health and how he's been feeling, his mood, his motivation. He answers honestly. He tells her he has nothing to live for, that there's no purpose in his life anymore, and that he feels lonely and isolated. I sit quietly and sink into the chair. My father would never say this to us directly, which is why I'm hearing it all for the first time. A few minutes go by, and then the nurse turns to us. Because of his weakness, poor balance, cloudy thinking, and general fatigue, he can't live alone anymore, she says. She asks if he agrees. He does. But he tells her he feels guilty about burdening us. She looks at us again, smiles, and says one more thing. He should probably move in with one of you. 
Crystal and I talk it through. Dad could move in with her, but to be honest, I don't know if that's such a good idea. She has a kid, multiple jobs. Her life is already so full, so stressful. But in L.A., my apartment is on the first floor. I have a walk-in shower, all the things he needs. I could do it. On my own, I decide it has to be me. It just does. Instead of seeing this moment as a burden, I want to see it as an opportunity. My father and I could become closer if we live together. But I need him to want this too. So at a family meeting, I put living in L.A. on the table to see what he says. Two big questions. Stay in Ohio or move to California? It's like choose your own adventure. Based, based on my uh, basis, I don't think I can do either one of them. That's not a part of the... That's not an option, Dad. Yeah. And, when you, and if you come to California, you would be staying with me. You say, me and Megan, new roommate situation. <laughs> okay? If you stay in Ohio, you would be either in a retirement facility. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It's clear my dad doesn't want to commit to anything. After 10 minutes of circling around a decision, I start to get impatient. I asked my father pointedly. If I said, you have to move to California and live with me, how would you feel about that? I feel great. Oh, oh great. Okay. Okay. So great. Let's choose that one. <laughs> you said you'll feel great? I like California. I do too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But... No, no, no. I like this. Let's just... Oh, Dad, logistics are logistics. We're in Ohio for another three weeks. Now that we're counting down the days, my father's anxiety is ramping up. He doesn't understand how he's going to get on the plane or how we're going to get out of his apartment lease. He doesn't think he has enough pants for California. Everything is impossible. What's our deal? To have hope. Can you have hope? Say yes. Can you have hope? Say yes. Yes. It's hard for me to listen to this. I sound forceful, like a sunshine bully. My dad tries to say something, but I quickly interrupt him. Is this negative energy? What do you have to have? What do you have to have? Hope. Can you have hope? Here we go again. Yeah. This is, this is, we're going to live together. Oh. Step by step. We're going to make it work, okay? I need you to trust me, remember? Yes, trust me. Your 31-year-old daughter, who has never been a caretaker before and is taking you away from everything you know. Good morning and welcome aboard your flight crew this morning, Captain Oscar. Before this, I lived alone for three years. Then my boyfriend moved in, and now my dad. There are three of us in my one-bedroom apartment. When we walk in, I immediately start dad-proofing the rooms. I roll up all of my colorful rugs so my dad doesn't slip and fall. In my bathroom, I install a raised toilet seat and grip bars. I give my father my bed and my bedroom. 
My boyfriend and I get the pull-out bed in our dining room slash office. I hide all my lingerie and sexy bathing suits. When my father lands in Los Angeles, he's still incredibly weak. And I'm not just his daughter, I'm also his secretary. I find him doctors and book his appointments. When he needs to pay a bill, we pay it together. I'm also his nurse. I help him change his clothes and take showers. When he has an accident, I clean up the floors. He's having a hard time eating and I'm watching him lose weight. I monitor his appetite and cook him specific meals for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I've brought in a crew of people to help. There's a speech, physical, and occupational therapist and a nurse who all come to visit. An hour here, an hour there. But I'm the first person he sees in the morning and the last person he sees at night. The weight of his moment-to-moment life is fully on my shoulders, and I had no idea how heavy it would be. He can't sit down without my help, can't take a shower without me there. Every move he makes, I'm right beside him, his shadow. Still, I try to resume my life, launch back into work, make plans with friends, go out to bars. I try to take my dog to the park, cook and clean the house like usual. But it's just not possible. I cancel on my friends last minute, I can't keep the house clean, and I'm constantly running late to meetings. His life is my life. It's all-consuming. But I can't tell my father that. We're together all the time, but I feel like I'm living this part of our life alone. And it's only been two weeks. I need my dad to depend on me a little less, or start to move in that direction. So I try to help him. At the kitchen table, I surround us with post-it notes and colorful markers, ready to brainstorm. If you can have anything, what do you want it to be? I'm definitely more into this future planning than he is. He's closing his eyes and starting to fall asleep. Dad. How can you answer that question? I don't know. Just make a goal. My dad once told me before I go to bed, I should envision the things I want to accomplish. That he used to do that. That's how he came to America. And that's always worked for me. But I can't convince him to make any goals. So I pick up a marker and start doing it for him. You want to become independent? Yeah. I'm so blinded by my own determination to move him forward. Maybe he does need to sleep. But that's not what I'm thinking right now. I'm afraid. I write down a few more goals, like walk without my walker, change clothes by myself. How about cooking for myself and my daughter? How about that? That's a good one. (laughs) What's another one, Dad? Dad, are you there? His eyes are closed. He's tapped out. And so am I. No one ever told me my father would become independent again. No nurse told me he would or wouldn't walk without his walker. No doctors told me he would or wouldn't drive. I don't know what's realistic, which means I'm in my own ideal world and I'm just winging it. I'm making up these goals. I want to imagine a better life for him. And he's improving, little by little, day by day. He's able to sit down and stand up on his own, but I notice he's not making his bed. 
He's able to walk more confidently, but he's not going outside. He's able to stay awake longer, but he's not being social. He spends hours in the middle of the day lying in his bed doing nothing. That's when I'm the most frustrated with him. I storm into his room or I cry to myself in a corner. Exhausted by my own emotions, I call up a Buddhist friend who just encourages me to just let him be and to love him exactly as he is, to respect his life, if he leaves his bedroom or not. I start writing that phrase down every day for myself. I will respect my father's life. I will love him exactly as he is, something I've never written down before. And this becomes my new goal, to hold my tongue, to say less. It's hard. I slip up all the time, especially when it comes to his medication. Dad, did you take your medication yet? It's 10 o'clock. You were supposed to take it at 9.30. Sometimes I catch myself. You're doing that thing again. You're making it sound like he's messing up. But some days I can't stop. Did you drink your water today? I interrogate him. Are you sure? Your water bottle looks full. I'm starting to realize it's the small stuff I say every day. The little things that can chip away at him the most. Because that's what he did to me. When he gets all A's, I focus on how he didn't do the dishes. It takes me a while. Eventually, I do get better. When it's two in the afternoon and I notice that my dad has been lying in bed for the past three hours, I go into his room and I ask if he wants to go for a walk. He says no, and I just say, okay. I let him be. It's June now. We're three months in, and I've been practicing saying less. We get on the phone with Crystal. Well, give her an update. How are you doing, Dad? What update? <laughs> How's work? What's going on? Huh? I'm fine. Fine? Yeah. I mean, work, work, I'm talking about. Not, not your housework. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Can't you tell he's stronger? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my appetite got better. That's one of the first times I've heard my father recognize he's progressing out loud. What? That's awesome. And Megan's feeding you good food, I hear. I guess. <laughs> I'm laughing because I know he's joking. In the past, I might have gotten defensive. But now I know him yeah. better. And he's helping around the house. He helped me organize my cables yesterday. Tell them what you did yesterday. Well, we went to the pub. What do we have to eat, Dad? Snacks. Crackers. Crackers. <laughs> yeah, we're running out of food right now. <laughs> we're not running out of food. We just need to go to the grocery store like every family on a Sunday. <laughs> Is he really worried we're running out of food? I'm trying to get better at listening to him. Like, really listening. I don't want to brush him off or just tell him everything is fine. So I ask him directly about his worries and fears. He lists off a few things. He's worried about his car, his clothes, where all the stuff from his apartment went. 
Do you have anything else you're worried about? A lot of things to worry about. What are you worried about? Money. What would make you not worried about money? More money. <laughs> As I'm loosening up, he's loosening up too. And I can tell he's coming into himself again. During breakfast, when we're sitting at the dining room table, conversations that used to be dominated by his health status are replaced with mundane talks about whatever, which is great. Do you have any dreams? Yeah, how guys have been? Oh, like what? I'm trying to solve a problem. <laughs> what was the problem? A math problem. A math problem? Yeah. That was the dream? Yeah, I screwed up. Don't remember. You don't remember the math problem? Yeah. How about you? No dreams. No dreams. Yeah. So now we talk about all kinds of things. But I hadn't asked him about how he thought it was going. Was I pushing him too hard? How was he feeling? Then, a few weeks ago, one afternoon, he shuffles into my office. I sit him in a chair, and we get into it. I ask him... Those first few weeks in L.A., what was he thinking? Those days, I was in a state of shock. You were in a state of shock. Trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Having to change planes, change house, moving here, moving there. It was just dizzy. Dizzy. His mind was dizzy. When I asked my father specifically about whether or not making goals was helpful... He tells me they weren't. You know, we have good intentions. I just cannot see the outcome. Every day I ask myself what I'm, supposed, what I'm going to do. My mind doesn't open. It's just block. It's a block. I have nothing to look forward to. That's the way I felt. Yeah. That's the way you felt then? Yeah. yeah. Until I overcome my uh, injuries, I don't feel confident. To be able to do all these things. And I don't think anybody will, will help me do, do this. Why? Huh? Because that's the way life is. Being dependent on somebody to do all these things is not easy. Yeah. Do you feel like I'm pushing you? No. No, no it's actually trying to encourage me. Trying to get me set on the positive direction. It's not annoying? It could be annoying, but uh, I don't have much to say. What do you mean? Huh? Well, I know you're trying to do your best, yeah. And I try to follow you, yeah. Because I know you think, too, think much about me. This isn't the first time my dad's told me that he sees me and everything I've been doing. But every time he says it, it still gets to me. Me doing my best is enough. But after I, after I felt I felt that you were more concerned about my life than ever before, yeah. Hmm. Whereas before we were just living separately, right? Yeah, living separately. And after I felt you get to know more, know more about me. I believe I get to know more about your working. How you feel, which is, which is good. And your determination, determination to help me. 
Not a surprise, but just uh, not a shock. It could be a shock. Mm, yeah. Was it a surprise? Yeah, it was a surprise, yeah. <laughs> Why was it a surprise? Because I never thought that you that you really do care. It takes me a while to process what he's saying. I never knew he felt like I never cared. Because I've always cared. But maybe he's right. Maybe I didn't care as much as I care now. Megan Tan is the host of Snooze, a podcast from LAist Studios. Her story was produced by Laura Strachewski. Coming up, the surprising power of making a spreadsheet full of profanities. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. It's This American Life, Myra Glass. Today's program, You're It. Stories of the people who step up and say, I will take care of this. I've got this and the very, very unexpected places that can lead them. We have arrived at Act 2 of our show, Act 2, Game of Phones. So over the last few years, one of our producers, Hannah Jaffe-Walt, has been checking in with somebody who decided that they were going to be it, like, forever ago. And where's the mantle well? She's a school principal, likes being in charge, is great about the whole thing of the buck stopping with her. She is very consistent about it. Except for one choice she made that Hannah did not understand. Here she is. A school principal is a pretty classic year-it job. It's all you. When the school needs new math books, a new curriculum, a new budget, you're it. A pipe broke and now the science classroom is flooded. You're it. Students got into a fight at lunch. Seven teachers called in sick today and now there are 14 minutes to rearrange the entire schedule and communicate it to everyone involved. All you. Because of this, the job tends to attract a certain type of person. A person who believes they can or should or needs to be the one called on in any given moment. Often, but not always, this is also a person who is quick to color code, has contingency plans for everything, and loves a system. You'll find variations. You've got your brilliant visionary types and the parking rules people, the person whose task lists are alphabetical, and the person who is more playing it by ear and talks about holding space. Dr. Teresa Hill is somehow a little bit of all of these people. The first time I tried to describe her to someone else, I found myself saying, she's just such a principal. When I first talked to her, Dr. Hill had recently become Arizona Principal of the Year. I'd heard of Teacher of the Year. I didn't know Principal of the Year was a thing, but it is. And in 2021, Dr. Hill was the one who was picked. Yeah, no, it was just a phone call. I was in my office. It was a summer. There wasn't a lot going on. And um, received the call, you know, congratulations. You are the Arizona Principal of the Year. Why do you think you won? Oh, who knows? <laughs> I do. That was a fake-out question. I know. Dr. Hill's assistant principal nominated her. You're actually supposed to apply yourself, but the assistant principal knew Dr. Hill wouldn't actually do it, so she got the ball rolling, writing, quote, Dr. Hill has built the culture at Walden Grove High School from the ground up. It's one of those schools that's friendly and warm. 
people feel excited about what they do. A few months after Dr. Hill was elevated to Principal of the Year, that's when she made a choice that seemed so unlike her, the opposite of everything she is. That story begins in August 2021. And you remember this time, COVID, then schools reopening, there were teacher shortages, parents angry about masks and having to keep their kids home. And when I saw Dr. Hill facing the chaos and vitriol of that miserable period of time, I thought, oh, just watch this woman own this mess. We are about to see all the wizardry of principledness brought to bear on this situation. She's going to rein this right in. Here's what things looked like at Dr. Hill's school. The county had mandated that students had to quarantine if they were exposed to COVID at school and weren't vaccinated. So Dr. Hill enforced this mandate. Parents pushed back. One group of parents came to her school and refused to leave the lobby after one of their kids had to quarantine. They were there for hours. They were arrested. They filmed themselves being arrested, posted it online, and the videos made headlines. And after that, Dr. Hill's office administrator said there were angry voicemail messages on the school phone. And I went to her and said, hey, I I need you to send me those messages. And she just shook her head and she had tears in her eyes and she was like, you don't want to hear these messages. I told her it's okay. I just said, "I, I, I understand. I know. I know they're not good. I just, I need them. So just send them to me. It's okay. Why and, did you uh, need them? Well, um, er- everything that I did always was from a perspective of, like, I'm not going to make you do something that I'm not going to do myself. Uh-huh. And I wasn't going to put that on her to have to sort through. You know what I mean? And that's kind of the way that I I dealt with anything as a principal. It's like, I'm the leader of the school, and I need to make sure that I'm taking care of things. Principal Hill assumed the voicemails were about the videos that were circulating online, blaming her for enforcing the county quarantine rules. So angry messages on the school voicemail went straight to the bottom of her to-do list. And I went about my day and, you know, did all the normal things of what I would do where, you know, I'm out supervising for lunch and supervising before school, between classes, you know, going into classes, whatever, just doing my normal thing. And then it wasn't until the end of the day when, you know, once the buses have left and kid and teachers are kind of leaving, and then I started listening to them. I hope your principal your district, your high school, every one of you fucking morons gets sued into oblivion. That was the first one. I want to say, if you're sensitive to profanity, this doesn't let up. Principal Hill kept listening. You are committing war crimes against the people of the United States. You guys are shameful, disgusting, vile, evil, and you better check yourself before Christ. Shame on you. You guys definitely without doubt suck ass. Now, in the first few, I'm not really affected personally, I guess. You know what I mean? Like, I can hear people are mad. I can hear that they're venting. Like, whatever. I can deal with all that. I'm a high school principal. I deal with all kinds of conflict, right? It's it's not the end of the world. I'm not here to make everybody love me. No big deal. But definitely, when the fourth one comes, um, then, you know, things get real. Yes, hi. If you could just let Teresa Hall 
I'm sorry, Teresa Hill, the principal of Walden Grove High School, know that America is watching her, and if she could do everybody in this country a favor and disappear, maybe spin on a on a sandpaper dildo, maybe run backwards through a cornfield, um, maybe uh, eat the end of a shotgun. Any of those things would be uh, acceptable. So tell her she better watch her sick. Dr. Hill paused. She was sitting alone in her office, door closed, listening on speakerphone. And she'd been clicking through the messages, next message, next message, until this one. I'd never received anything like that as a principal, as a teacher. I mean, like, whoa, what the heck, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, eat the end of a shotgun. Maybe you should eat the end of a shotgun. She slowly repeated the words of the messages to herself. And then she got back to work. Okay, I think I need I need to save these. Like, they were telling me that they were going to sue me. And I thought, you know what? I want to make sure that I have this on record. And so as I was listening to the first to them for the first time, I was also transcribing them. Um, you started transcribing word for word what people were saying? Yeah. You're bullies, cowards, and deniers of freedom. She typed, cowards, deniers of freedom. There are 40 messages like these. Shame, shame, shame. She was playing them on speakerphone, and her assistant principal overheard came in to help Dr. Hill transcribe in case she needed these messages for something in the future. Maybe as evidence, she thought. How about we end up outside your guys' houses? We're not going to protest the school. We'll go directly to your bloody fucking homes. Bloody fucking homes, Dr. Hill types. As a person who has transcribed a lot of audio because of my job, it takes a really long time. And if you are trying to get it word for word, you have to go back over and over again. Yeah. I mean, there were times where I was, I, we would look at each other and I was like, did they say this or did they say that? And she would say, I heard this. I'm like, oh, I heard this. Well, let's play it again. And we would play it again. To be like, did he say you definitely are sick ass or you suck ass? Right. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. I was typing away. I would stop. I would go back, type again. And like, unfortunately, I couldn't just go back a little bit. So I literally, when I went to restart, I would have to listen to the message from the very beginning all the way through again. I mean, man, it was brutal. But she kept going all the way through the end. She could get this under control. She could create a useful document. And I'm not talking about a simple transcript. Tell me about the format. Like, why did you, this is a spreadsheet. Why did you choose to do it this way? Um, I guess I'm a math teacher and I like (laughs) spreadsheets more than I like Word. (laughs) It has columns. You say the message number, the time, the date, the phone number of the person. Yeah. It feels to me like, oh, and I saw it. I was like, of course, she's a principal. (laughs) Just organize, clear information. (laughs) Like, did it feel like you were interacting with it in the way that you might? you know, a school budget or... Yeah, I mean, I even, like, um, highlighted so you could see, like, this is a direct threat. This is an implied threat. I just felt like it was a lot more organized this way. 
And I think that's part of, you know, of why I did it. It's something I can control, getting the phone number, writing down what is exactly said. I think that transcribing actually, it helped me, like, detach myself from what was being said and make it more like a job. I don't know if that makes any sense. That makes so much uh, sense. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Principal Hill sent her spreadsheet to the superintendent, noting the threats that may still need investigating by police, helpfully color-coded by degree of danger. Same way she may have shared, say, a color chart that allows you to assess and visualize student achievement. It's not an obvious choice to respond this way, but everything she did in response to these messages felt so in line with who she is and how she operates. She managed it. She contained the problem and shielded everyone else from unnecessary distress. She didn't share the messages with anyone else, her colleagues, her husband. She told her family she'd gotten some threats and to be on alert for strange cars, and she began parking in the back of the school and entering that way. She told me she imagined if someone was waiting to snipe her out when she arrived for work in the morning, they'd be sitting by the front door. She said this casually, not like a person who was panicked or scared, but a person who was taking the appropriate steps to deal with the problem. It was handled. And then we get to the choice that I did not understand. Principal Hill quit in the middle of the school year. Just six months after she was named Principal of the Year, she left her job. She didn't leave immediately after the harassment. She kept going to work for a couple months. But the voicemails started to get to her. The thing about listening to something over and over is that it stays with you. That was the accidental side effect of transcribing these messages. Principal Hill says the words became ingrained in her head. And she'd find herself in a meeting or supervising lunch outside. And they pop back up. You know, I find myself in the courtyard, like, not talking to anybody, you know, just, like, in my own little world, sitting there by myself, not interacting with kids and, and doing the things that I like to do. I'm a pretty positive person, and I like to keep things light and move forward, and and this was, like, heavy on me. You couldn't, you couldn't move forward? At the time, I couldn't, no, and I, I had a hard time. Because you know deep down how you feel. You don't feel good. And yet it's not healthy for anyone in your organization to know how you feel. <laughs> so, so you Wait, slap why? on a smile. Why? You know, you put, you put on a happy face. and What is that? That's you, some, like, principle thing that people can't know how you feel? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, people want leaders who are strong but who aren't emotional. And, and you know, I don't, I don't ever want to put my own burdens and my own challenges on my people. Dr. Hill is so good at keeping what she feels to herself that even after we talked about this for hours, I still didn't understand why she had to leave, why this was the thing that she couldn't shake off. But then, months after she left her job, Dr. Hill gave testimony in court, and she spoke candidly in public about her experience of all this for the first time. The parents who wouldn't leave her school were charged with trespassing. There was a whole trial. They were found guilty. And then the judge asked Dr. Hill if she wanted to say anything. 
did she want to share the effect this had on her? And she did. She talked about her fear. And this time, she wasn't all casual in describing avoiding the front entrance of the school. I couldn't go through the front of the school. In this day and age, with shootings and attacks on public officials, I, if you listen to the messages and you heard their anger and, and their blood pressure raised, I feared for my safety and I feared for the safety of my family. This has negatively impacted me physically. I've had health problems because of this. It's impacted me mentally. And unfortunately, the biggest impact is it affected me professionally. Never in my 29 years as an educator would I think of leaving my school halfway through the year. She said to the judge, you have to understand what I had to listen to. I don't want to cuss, but I think I need you to understand here is if, if it's okay, I can quote some of those messages that were left for me. The judge gives permission to cuss. And Dr. Hill, who had prepared nothing, has nothing written down, begins repeating the messages verbatim. It's like she's been waiting to let them out. I was called a fucking cunt. I was told to sit and spin on a sandpaper dildo. I was told to disappear. I was told to eat the end of the shotgun. I was told not to go out in public. I was told, we're not coming to the school. We're coming to your house. And I lived in fear for four months after that. A friend of mine, an assistant principal for decades now, told me he still remembers his mentor explaining early on that the job of a school leader is never inflict pain on an institution. The job is to absorb pain for the institution. It must be confusing to be any kind of public official right now, trying to absorb the pain of the last few years. How many principals or election officials or public health officials or prime ministers of countries have scrambled to respond to a public that is rageful by doing what they know how to do, by throwing PowerPoints at people, by holding public hearings, printing out color charts, only to finally understand that all the vitriol and misinformation was always going to be too enormous for any one person to absorb. Principal Hill shielded everyone else from distress until it was only hers. But it wasn't just the words. Um, it was the isolation that I felt with it. I felt like I was all alone in dealing with the situation. That is what made me say I can't do this anymore. So many of these voicemails are asking for you to resign. Yeah. So then when you did, did it feel like oh, I don't want to give them what they wanted. Of course. Of course. But I had to really dig deep and do what was best for me. What was best for her was the one choice that was completely out of character, something far from her principalness and all her familiar moves. She decided not to be it anymore. Jeffy Walt is the producer on our show. 
program is produced by Nikki Meek and Bethel Hopte. People put together today's show include Chris Benderev, Sean Cole, Aviva de Kornfeld, Cassie Halley, David Kestenbaum, Valerie Kipnis, Catherine Raimondo, Alain Mustafa, Stone Nelson, Nadia Raymond, Alyssa Ship, Christopher Sotala, Lily Sullivan, Matt Tierney, and Diane Wu. Our managing editor is Sarah Abdurrahman. Our senior editor is David Kestenbaum. Our executive editor is Emmanuel Berry. Special thanks today to Ravenna Koenig, Mike Sawiski, and Regina Grossman, and the NASSP, our website, thisamericanlife.org, where you can stream our archive of over 750 episodes for absolutely free. Also, there's all kinds of other stuff, lists of favorite shows, videos, tons of things there. Again, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Troy Malatia. You know, he called me at 2 a.m. today. 2 a.m. Woke me up to tell me he's been having trouble sleeping lately. Could I maybe sing him a lullaby? I mean, I know, I know it's, it's, it's like unprecedented times, unprecedented requests, but I figured it was worth a shot. <laughs> I'm Eric Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. Got the way her the world on me I love my baby but she don't love me I got the way her the world